The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. This treasury market is an artificial market, but not between willing buyers and willing sellers, but between fiscal authorities and their cousins at the central bank. Listen, we might make it to next summer with the strongest economy in the history of the world in the loosest conditions. I wouldn't bet on it. I would bet that those facts, if they continue to come, that inflation will increasingly be taken aboard, not just by folks in the real economy, but by financial markets. That's Kevin Walsh, a former governor of the US Federal Reserve, discussing what he calls an economic situation that is unprecedented in human history. Welcome to Magellan in the Know. In this episode, Kevin talks with Magellan's chairman and chief investment officer, Hamish Douglas, about how the Federal Reserve and European Central Bank are opting to freeze low interest rates, even though there are indications that we're about to face big inflationary pressures. Kevin Walsh, who acted as the Fed's primary liaison with Wall Street during the GFC and its aftermath, recommends several steps to take to brace against a possible inflationary wave and how some countries are already starting to act. First, a warm welcome from Hamish Douglas. Welcome back to Magellan in the Know. My name is Hamish Douglas. I'm Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Magellan Asset Management. Today, I'm delighted to have back on the show Kevin Walsh. Kevin is a former Governor of the Federal Reserve. Uh, He has seen crises before. He has witnessed the beginning of quantitative easing. And I think we're at a very interesting timing in history, potentially, here, and I think potentially a very important time for investors. So firstly, Kevin, I'd like you to welcome you back on the podcast. Hamish, thanks very much. It's an honor to be back. And I will say, as you teed it up for your listeners, this is as consequential a moment we've had in the global economies for some time. So we should have good fun in front of us. Yeah, well, a big debate I think we're all grappling with as investors is this big question called inflation. And really what the central banks are going to do or not do about inflation and what is the direction of monetary policy. We've already seen a number of central banks around the the world started, and I would say quite timidly, starting to tighten monetary policy and interestingly move before the Federal Reserve has moved. The Federal Reserve has just announced that they're going to start gradually reducing the amount of bonds they're buying under quantitative easing by $15 a month. That sounds like a lot of money, but they are doing it at $120 billion a month at the moment. And if all goes to plan, their balance sheet should stop expanding around the middle of next year. And I use those words because even though they're tapering, they're still expanding their balance sheet at the moment. What impact do you think that this announcement by the Fed that they're starting to taper their balance sheet will have on sort of economic growth? And will it sort of tame inflation here? So there's a lot there, Hamish. I'd say on the question you asked at the end, I think what they're trying to do is having tapering without tightening. That's why they previewed this for so many months. When they finally made the announcement, they tried to take any of the hard edges off of it. They tried to make it very small relative to the size of their balance sheet. 
Now, normally when we central bankers, when we tighten policy, it's because we want to tighten policy. Policy is now the loosest it's been in the history of the world, and they haven't done much to tighten it. In fact, since they started to talk about the need for tapering in this go around, U.S. equity prices are up another 11 or 12 percent. Broad financial conditions are easier. So uh, I think one could view this as the immaculate tightening. This isn't a tightening cycle if they don't want it to be. I don't happen to think that the relative tightness or looseness in monetary policy has much at all effect on the state of real GDP, real output in this environment. I don't think it has a real effect on hiring decisions by businesses. And in light of what they're doing, which is a, a very modest tightening cycle that at this point, I don't think it's going to have any effect on inflation either. So instead, this is a very timid first step by the Fed. I'll just make one other point, which you highlighted at the outset. This is a very unusual cycle, Hamish, because normally when there's a tightening cycle, especially after a long period of incredible loose accommodation, usually there's a global community that's all rowing in the same direction. It was certainly true when we started to tighten, however timidly, after the 08 crisis. But here, the world's central banks are working in cross-purposes. I don't really know, I don't really think there's a very good historical antecedent for it, nor a very good rationale. But do you have the People's Bank of China, the Bank of Korea, the Bank of Canada? In some semblance, the Reserve Bank in New Zealand, the Reserve Bank of Australia, that have a more marked view towards some tightening cycle. Certainly Canada, Australia to a degree, but Canada and China to be sure, that are more serious about this tightening cycle, while the Federal Reserve and the ECB are at the other end of the spectrum. So it is strange with many of these global economic factors with COVID affecting our economies in largely similar ways to have the world's central banks working across purposes. So to some extent, Kevin, this is the tightening you're having when you're not having a tightening. It's really a tightening by press release uh, in order to look like you're doing something, but really you're not really taking any real action at the moment. I don't mean you, I mean the Federal Reserve, to really tighten financial conditions at all here. Yeah, you've got it exactly right. And by the way, the world's equity investors are telling us just that. This is not a real tightening to them. And broadly in private markets for private valuations around the world, there's been an acceleration in price. Chairman Powell gave uh, his press conference not so long ago. And the only time he mentioned the words financial stability or financial risks, never mind bubbles, is when he was asked about what was happening at, in Glasgow, Scotland, where he talked about climate risks there. But I would say if I look back to history in this sort of environment, you would have the world central bank saying, well, these asset prices, these broad financial stability risks are real, but they're hardly making mention of them. Obviously, they don't think it's much of a problem. And they must think that both the economy and financial markets can continue to grow to the sky. I hope they're right. Yeah, I think you just made some very, very interesting points. And, you know, the higher markets go in a perverse way, the better people feel, but the more dangerous things become here for investors. You know, this complacency that people have when markets just keep going up and the Fed is doing so little to stop it. Actually, if something goes wrong, you know, it could really go wrong for people. But I'm sure we can come back to that question on risk. But the inflation question, which I kind of started at, and, you know, it's easy to identify many drivers 
of the current inflationary pressures as transitory, like these supply chain pressures, the energy costs we're seeing, you know, the effect of chip supply around the world being constrained and these soaring used car prices and cars not being manufactured at the moment. You can see they should turn those things, but how concerned are you that many of these factors that you could as a central banker see as transitory, that they could become more long-lasting and persistent, and therefore things that you would usually think are transitory start to become more embedded in inflation expectations. So when does the word transitory become the word persistent? And actually, we have an inflation problem from from things that are usually transitory because they last for so long, they become in embedded. So, you know, that seems some people seem to be picking up on this sort of words persistent now. So Chairman Powell in his press conference just a few days ago, he seemed to redefine transitory to mean persistent and permanent. He somehow suggested that while he'd said that this run-up inflation was going to be transitory, they now think it's going to be around for something like another three or four quarters. And he thought that so long as inflation isn't permanently higher, then there's really not much the Fed needs to do, and it will come back down to the Fed's inflation goal of around 2%, maybe a touch higher, over the course of the next few quarters. I'm just not sure I understand intellectually how that happens. So I would understand how inflation could come back down to 2% or below if there was an asset bubble bursting, if this entire sod of the economy comes crashing down. So that's a theory of how inflation falls under target. But if we're confronted with a couple of things, Hamish, which is the strongest economy in our lifetimes, which in the U.S. I'll describe as the rate of change is exceptionally strong, and the level of economic growth is now well above, it strikes me, pre-COVID levels. If you have that, it is strange that you have the loosest financial conditions, the loosest monetary and fiscal policy, And as far as I can tell the history of the world, those two things are not supposed to go together. Now, could we get away with it? Sure we could. But remember, the job of a central bank isn't to sort of hope for the best. It's to prepare for reasonable downside scenarios. And I'm not sure exactly I know what insurance is being bought here. On the inflation question, which you and I should talk more about, I would say no matter your theory of inflation dynamics, and there are many theories of what causes inflation, The Fed seems to practice some at certain times and to avoid referencing those inflation dynamics when it's inconvenient. But no matter your theory, we're going to have inflation that's running above what consumers had come to expect for a generation for quite a while longer. And if, in fact, there is something to how consumers form their expectations about inflation, I'll tell you in the U.S., in consumers' expectations of inflation are moving to the upside businesses' expectations for inflation are moving upside as they're taking in real cost increases. And those with pricing power, which are more than not in this environment, are pushing them right through. So real people on the street are feeling this. For the bottom half of Americans, at least, that don't have any financial assets in a stock market or in their house where they don't have any positive equity, they've been falling behind, even though they've been getting real increases in wages for a period of at least a year, in some cases much longer, their take-home pay isn't lasting as long. So there must be a theory upon which the Fed is relying, and I can speculate on that if that's helpful, but I don't really understand, other than a dark side downside scenario, 
how immaculately with this kind of policy inflation is going to come back to target at all in the in the time frame they have in mind. Yeah, and I think that question on time frames are very a very interesting one. And no doubt they probably have the lumber chart up, up on their walls to show that it can reverse and just hoping some of it will reverse. But, you know, if they haven't reversed these transitory factors, let's call them like the supply chain pressures and energy costs and services, uh, wages uh, pressure, chip supply, if these things haven't reversed by, let's say, mid next year, by your summer next year, so let's say July, August next year, do you think central banks will have to become more aggressive and actually tighten monetary policy? You know, we haven't got any rate increases prior to that period sort of factored in by the Fed. And do you think if we do have these sort of inflation pressures that aren't reversing, it could be materially faster than the markets are expecting? Or if the Fed doesn't do it and we're into the sort of summer of next year and we're seeing the same thing, do you think bond investors could preempt the Fed and materially reprice the inflation risk? Because the market seems to have bought the transitory argument here. Yeah. So there's a lot there. I would say I've never seen a treasury market, the most important financial market in the world, the most important risk-free asset being treasury bonds. I've never seen the market acting in a way that is harder to reconcile with facts. And so one way to think about that is maybe the treasury market is so jerry-rigged through quantitative easing and the world central bank purchases that you and I can't look at the bond market and say that it's reacting to real events. Maybe it's just acting to the elephant in the room, which is the largest buyer of securities buying the largest issuance of securities from their neighborhood fiscal authority. So it is hard to understand the moves in treasury markets over the last six months or so. We've seen yields move up in certain days as if the vigilantes are back only to give it up, even though the data has almost been all one-sided towards a stronger economy, towards higher inflation. And so if the treasury market ends up demonstrating, evincing its own view of things, separate and apart from taking shorthand, taking the word of the central banks as though it's truth, then there can be a big nonlinear move in these bond markets. But because the world central banks have so much control over these, both in their asset purchases and in their open mouth operations, you know, the days of the bond vigilantes, it's hard to find any of them in most of these big markets. But I'm old fashioned enough to think that markets can exact their will if they choose to. And uh, every day that the Fed's statement of the world and the central bank statements of the world are in contrast to what businesses and consumers are seeing and feeling every day, I think they're taking a risk of a nonlinear move in these bond markets. And Kevin, would you agree that your summer of next year, sort of July and August, could be a real testing point here? You know, if inflation is, and these are not, and inflation isn't reversing at that period of time, could the Fed actually, in that scenario, if bond yields started going up, would it be realistic in that environment for them to increase quantitative easing, or do they kind of snook it at that point? We've seen a number of, of central banks roll over some of their yield curve management and things. At the, at the moment, Australia is a classic case in point where the central bank's actually withdrawn its position. So do you think come the summer next year is potentially the testing point here, or is that, am I being artificial there? 
So, well, we're all being artificial because these are artificial markets. This treasury market is an artificial market, but not between willing buyers and willing sellers, but between fiscal authorities and their cousins at the central bank. Listen, we might make it to next summer with the strongest economy in the history of the world in the loosest conditions. I wouldn't bet on it. I would bet that those facts, if they continue to come, that inflation will increasingly be taken aboard not just by folks in the real economy, but by financial markets. And maybe the simplest way to try to convey this is the old saw about, you know, you're a borrower and you've got a small loan from the bank and you can't pay it back. Well, you, the borrower, have a problem. What if you're a borrower and you have a really big loan from a bank and it's material to the bank? Well, then the bank has the bigger problem. I would say that's the world for central banks if your scenario comes into being. We get to next summer with strong economy, strong inflation, inflation eating up some of the real growth. And the world's central banks then say, oh my goodness, we might be behind. We have to accelerate tightening. We have to raise interest rates. And they start giving speeches about that. So then if we think about what happens is yields move up, risk asset markets might not like it, causing yields to move back down and the world's central banks then saying, maybe it's too late. They wouldn't say that to us publicly, but maybe in the corridors of power at the G20 meetings or the BIS, they find that they miss their window of opportunity to tighten policy. I mean, in any other cycle, Hamish, and here, this isn't asking for the Paul Volcker years. This is way back then in the Janet Yellen years, way back when in the Ben Bernanke years, neither of whom I would call hawks. Under their doctrine, under their reaction function, we would not have policy in the US, and I would argue around the world, nearly this loose. So we are in a brand new world here. And because it's a brand new world, folks like you and I, we should be humble about what happens. But this policy is radical relative to the policy, even since the global financial crisis, when the world's central banks were run by, I would say, center left policy, but broadly in the mainstream. I think when history looks back on this moment, they will see that these policies are decidedly different than what we had witnessed for 30 or 40 years. Decidedly different could turn out to be better outcomes. Inflation could come back to trend through some global phenomena or good luck, or maybe their emerging theory of the case. But I wouldn't want to bet the full independence of the United States Federal Reserve on that. And I hope that nobody in positions of power decide to make that large of a bet because if one is wrong, no matter what the probabilities of that are, there's going to be a large price to pay. And Kevin, when, you know, there's so much debate on inflation and everyone has a different theory on inflation and different things to look at that may be forward indicators, you know, what, what do you look at as a formal central banker and an economist looking at inflation? And what would give you, obviously, you're concerned about the pressures we're seeing, the persistence of it, but what would give you comfort that inflation pressures are easing? You know, what would you kind of look at that would give you indicators on both sides of this equation? Yeah, so I'll begin by saying what I wouldn't look at, which is I would not be looking at five-year inflation expectations. I wouldn't be looking at what the bond market is saying. And I hear from too many people in positions of power that are seeing those signals and saying, you see, we're really not that far off our historic inflation expectations. That's like a teacher giving a student a take-home test and getting the right answers back. It does not strike me that those bond markets and the authorities are offering independent views. They're offering a mirror view and feels to me a little house of mirrors. So I wouldn't be looking at that, and I don't think those that are are looking wisely. 
If I want to look at indicators that could tell me what's around the corner, what's over the mountain, well, first I would look at in this environment because so many markets are being polluted by Fed interventions, central bank interventions. I'd look at markets that I could find that would be uh, relatively uninterrupted. So the commodity markets are pretty good markets for that. They're not perfect. But if I'm looking for forward market signals, I'd look there. And if you want looks at the top 20 commodities right now, they sure don't tell me a story that inflation's rolling over. Second is the expectations I would look at is what are real consumers and real businesses thinking and doing? The most central bankers in positions of power haven't referenced those recently because those are moving materially higher. Those look very different than they did six and nine and 12 months ago. And again, that's not perfect. But if you want to tell the benign case, I'd look for those to roll over. And I haven't seen much evidence of that. And the third thing that I would do is I would be looking at what's happening on the wage front. I tend to believe that non-wage prices in this environment are telling me a bit more about the future of inflation. But Janet Yellen, Ben Bernanke, institutional thinking at elite institutions like central banks, they tend to think in the last 20 years that wages are the tiebreaker. If wages are moving higher with a long and variable lag, that means inflation's gonna be moving higher six, nine, 12 months later. Well, the bad news for those that wanna say this move in inflation is transitory and benign is we've seen an acceleration in wages, not just in the United States, but almost everywhere around the world, even over the course of the last couple of weeks. And so if I were to end this question with the last point, I would say at some level, I think the Fed's best story, the world's best story as to why we have such extraordinary loose policy, even though growth is very strong, is that we still have four or five million people in the United States, comparable percentages overseas, that had jobs the day before the pandemic that don't have jobs now. As a result, they conclude that we're not at full employment. So they would say, as Rich Clarida, the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve, a very noted academic, a fine official said today, there's still a major employment gap. Well, if you believe those four or five million people are coming back to the labor force, first, you shouldn't be seeing this massive acceleration in wages. But I suppose if they were to come back on the other end of the Delta variant, they could eat up some of that lack of supply on the wage front, and they could make wages come down over time. My judgment, which could be wrong, is we're actually long past full employment in the US, and full employment is never a fixed number. The natural rate of unemployment is never fixed. It's a function of broad public policies. It strikes me there are a lot of policies in the US and around the world, both set by government and set by behavior, that are keeping a lot of people out of the labor force. And I think they're gonna stay out of the labor force would be my guess. So broadly, if I were to sort of answer this question, I would say if wages are the tiebreaker, they're going in the wrong direction for the benign inflation crowd. And more broadly, what I would say is the forward indicators we need to use to try to get ahead of this are not working in the benign direction. I hope they do. I hope we don't have to play massive catch up come next summer as your question entails, but I think the degrees of freedom are getting more limited. The window of opportunity for wise and prudent and deliberative actions are getting harder. And so it's a very strange phenomenon, one that I would say 
the Ben Bernanke Fed or Janet Yellen Fed, I don't think would be acting quite this way. Yeah, and certainly they're not letting any steam out of the system here. They're letting things get in financial markets get hotter and and hotter. And Kevin, in a bizarre way, from our perspective, I hope you're right, you know, because if we really get a position of an inflation story, we could get a material repricing of risk assets in the world because the markets are quite wrong-footed, I would say, for if we really get inflation and it becomes persistent, it's not a pretty story for financial assets and people leaving this amount of risk on. And, you know, I would be relaxed about that happening. I kind of sit in a transitory camp that some of it will reverse mainly because that's the most uncomfortable camp for us to be in, in terms of having a relatively defensive position. We're watching everybody parting at the punch bowl at the moment, and we're kind of sitting a little bit cautious at the moment, and that's somewhat uncomfortable. So your sort of backdrop and scenario is scary to some extent and sobering, but we're not betting the house on that, but we certainly see this risk you're talking about. Yeah, I just add, I think that sounds very prudent to me, Hamish, and I'll add a few things. One is, None of us have seen this experiment. So if one believes there's a possibility for turning points, then at these potential turning points are where we want to come into the turning points with more liquidity, because we want to be able to be liquid to react in the event that there's a regime change. So that's point one. Point two, again, I think that the official sector is making a lot of one-off factors around the pandemic, a lot of supply chain problems, and surely those are true. But I think of those, Hamish, as really a result of long periods that preceded the pandemic. It used to be obvious and often said in economics 30 and 40 years ago, when interest rates are too high, they do harm to demand. When interest rates are too low, they do harm to supply. And part of the reason why I think supply chains are so stressed, which is leading to this narrative that that's the reason inflation is doing what it's doing, is because we underinvested for about a decade in the real side of the economy and overinvested in financial assets. So the reason why the supply side of the economy, both for workers and for widgets, ends up not being as resilient as we want is we have not invested in those sorts of things. We did not invest in redundant supply. We did not invest real capital in building um, second and third factories to be there if the first factory can't make it. So I think the supply chain is a long part of the problem, but I'd say broadly it's because even before this cycle, we really didn't have interest rates at an equilibrium. And now that we are in a boom, they're even further outside of equilibrium. And maybe just a third and final point, you know, most of us who are listening to this call and are on this call, we are beneficiaries because the net change in inflation does hurt our disposable income, but half of my fellow Americans in the U.S. and a huge amount of people that are clients of yours, they have real financial assets. So the change in wealth can compensate for the degradation in take-home pay for milk and a used car and eggs and all the things we buy every day. But these policies that are being run in the name of financial inclusion, in the name of having a broader and diversified employment, these are actually, if they go badly, the most regressive policies I can think of. If you were trying to design policies to separate the haves from the have-nots, I wonder whether you could do much better than this. Those that have assets are doing better and better. You know, just the illustrative example of Elon Musk is now has a personal net worth more than ExxonMobil, and that has moved in order of magnitudes more in the last 12 months for he and his ilk 
than in any period in the history of the world. This really is the new Gilded Age. Now, I don't happen to think that Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk are bad for the economy. I don't think they're a policy error. But we, in order for that kind of success and wealth and productivity to be felt by the broader economy, we don't want to be putting in a regressive tax called inflation that really hurts those that are trying to take a step up. So even from the perspective of broad and inclusive employment, which I really genuinely believe is the objective function of almost every policymaker that I know, I think those that are going to benefit aren't those who they expect. And those that can be hurt are those that they've been trying to protect. Kevin, I'm going to move on to the point you made that we're seeing the strongest period of economic growth in our living memories at the moment. You know, it's supported by clearly the reopening of economies, huge pent up demand, very accommodative monetary policy, both liquidity and zero interest rates, excess personal savings. You know, how long do you think this sort of strong growth period can last? You know, MasterCard put out the other day that they're already starting to see a sort of pullback in debit expenditure as some of the, at the lower end, uh, some of the fiscal handouts are stopping. Is this a an incredibly strong but temporary spike in growth and the stimulus will run out? Or is this a multi, multi-year period that we're in a new paradigm of a new growth cycle for the world? What are we actually looking at here? So I'll give you my answer, but I'll begin by saying we've never seen this experiment, so we're all making it up. None of us know. I would say, broadly speaking, though, the consumer in the world has never had it this good in aggregate. Obviously, there are plenty of consumers that are in harm's way and where COVID has had huge negative developments. But among the advanced Western economies, the U.S. consumer is in very good shape, in part because of fiscal policy, but in part because for many of them, they're getting their first wage increases in quite some time. Businesses have excess cash balances, even as they have been levering up through this cycle. So in some static sense, the consumer and the business sector look pretty good. And the banking system, again, as trees have grown to the sky, their capital bases look good. So in all that sense, we should say, this is great. We're in the early innings and we have an enormous cycle in front of us. And I would be optimistic like that if I thought the conduct of economic policy were something like equilibrium, were something like in a normal state. But because the conduct of economic policy in the US and many parts of the West are consistent with an economy that is in its darkest day, we don't know whether one of several consequences could happen. One is, to your earlier point, will inflation eat the real economy? So in that sense, in the US and third quarter GDP arithmetic, just to give you an example, the real economy grew at 2%, nominal GDP grew at something like 7.5%. So that's a pretty good nominal GDP quarter of 7 plus percent. The four quarters of 2021 will have nominal GDP of call it 10%. Boy, that's really exciting. We should feel great about it. But the mix between real and nominal looks like it's getting worse and worse. Real growth in the third quarter of 2% is nothing too impressive. My guess is we'll have higher real growth in the fourth quarter, but I do think we have a risk of inflation eating the real side of the economy. That's not good for the real side. Now, for the businesses you and I are in and part of our lives, that's not bad at all. Companies live in the nominal world. Earnings come from a nominal world. So I guess broadly on your question about what could happen, 
In the good scenario, nominal growth continues to be extraordinarily high. Monetary policy gets closer to equilibrium and the real and inflation mix steady out. It's possible, but I worry about the alternative scenarios. One is inflation scares markets or scares policymakers, so they have to rush to close the gap. If it scares markets, then asset prices go up with earnings only to be fearful that interest rates are coming. So that's a problem. And I'll give another sort of scenario that's problematic. Broadly, if I wanted to be optimistic about the next decade and I could only stipulate one fact, I'd say we're in the early stages of a new productivity boom. And if the companies in which you invest and the world is invested is driving huge levels of productivity, then that can slay the inflation genie. That productivity will show that we're getting more widgets at a fewer inputs. Inflation can go back to target and we'll be in great shape. Wages can still stay up with productivity and we'll be in a better place. The problem with that theory is one, we don't know how much productivity is coming out of COVID. I suspect more than we can broadly acknowledge, but I suspect one other thing, that the productivity isn't being broadly shared. So just to give a simple example, I think that those at the productivity frontier, I won't use proper nouns here, but you can, the leading e-commerce company in the world has more share and more productivity. They took what was going to be their growth trajectory in the next 10 years and it consolidated in the last 10 months and they're gonna drive huge productivity. So the leading company in almost every vertical and sub-vertical, I would venture to say, is on the forefront of a productivity boom. But the middling company, the company in the middle of that sector, which also could be publicly traded company, They've been losing out in productivity, would be my guess. Well, they haven't had quite the same low cost of capital. They haven't been able to get their hands on workers because as I say in the US, we're out of workers. So the productivity gap between the frontier and the middle might be as wide as at any point in my adult lifetime. And in that case, you can understand why the best companies in your portfolio are having their equity prices boom the others look like they're doing okay, but that's until someone blows the whistle. And the chasm in that productivity could lead to an enormous amount of disruption or structuring in the economy, which could be quite detrimental for these broader economic developments. So it's a long story. I'll end where I began, which is I don't know. My sense for optimism is productivity. My concern about productivity is it'll be the least well-shared productivity gain really that we've had in many, many decades. Yeah. And Kevin, you use the words and I think, you know, you're one of the most experienced people in the world. And obviously we talk a lot and you use some very important words, I don't know. And that's really the most precedent thing to be saying because it's so extraordinary, the situation we're seeing. And there's so many different pathways that this could take, which makes it so complicated. You know, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I know you hate me doing this, Kevin, even privately, you hate me doing this. But, you know, the Fed is clearly in no mood to take away this punch bowl at the moment. And they're using the words transitory and they're using the five million jobs that are still uh, missing uh, here. You know, if we get to mid next year, their balance sheet is going to be materially larger than it is today, even though they're tapering. They probably mid next year still have an increased interest rates at that point near zero. You know, with the inflation pressures that you're talking about, and the likelihood of them persisting and this very strong economic recovery we're seeing, 
I just want to know, do you think this is a mistake? And if you were in charge, and this is a completely hypothetical question, you're not in charge, but at this present time in history, what would you do if at the present time and why would you do it given that everything's so uncertain at the moment? Okay, well, don't let me duck it. I'm going to try a couple of times, but don't let me duck the question. I would say they should be in the business of risk management just like you and your clients are often in the business of risk management. The bet they're making is the Western world's economies. So that bet is an even bigger bet than what happens if I lose 20% of my net worth in my Magellan account. So as a risk management matter, I would say I don't actually understand what they're doing. I must say I am puzzled by the decision. And, you know, you and I live in the world of making good decisions as best we can. That doesn't mean we're always going to end up with the best outcomes. Can I ask you a question? There is a reappointment that is due at the moment. Can you understand what they're doing in the context of the politics? I still can't. No, actually, I don't. I can't even understand that. So in the conventional view, oh, they're spiking the punch bowl because there's a reappointment coming. I wish I believed that. That I could understand. I wouldn't feel it's right. Almost everyone I know that's chosen this tough world of central banking, they're actually doing what they think are the right things to do. I can cast aspersions as maybe it sounds like I am at the decisions, which I think are unwise, but I don't really, even in my heart of hearts, cast aspersions about the character of the decision makers. Why? Because I think what they're doing is actually terrible politics. I think what the Biden administration, the Biden one at White House, I think the president's numbers on the economy have fallen by 15 and 20 points among independent voters in the last five months. Normally, if that happens, you'd say, if you're getting asked a poll question, how's the president doing on the economy? How are your economic team doing on the economy? Those numbers fall when you're going into a recession. Those numbers fall when the stock market's falling. Well, those numbers almost never fall when the economy is roaring, virtually everybody who wants a job can get a job, And the stock market is at career highs, both in absolute levels and relative to disposable income. There's only one answer to that riddle, it strikes me, as to why in economics, the president's numbers are falling so far, so fast, and that's inflation. Real people are feeling this in a way that the ivory tower simply is not. And so normally you would have an administration that is counseling in a subtle and deferential way to the central bank hey, let's not do anything any crazy any time before the next election. That's the history, that's the 20th and 21st century of history of how those discussions happened. Here, I think quite the opposite. If I were sitting in the West Wing of the White House, dutifully working at the National Economic Council, working for President Biden, I would be, in some ways, be worried that the central bank is letting inflation get out of hand and it's hurting the president's own poll numbers. So I don't even get it by the raw standard of politics. So I'm quite puzzled by their decision. And, you know, you asked, well, what would would I be doing if I were there? First, the president has a big appointment to make in the next several weeks. I do not expect the phone call to come my way. We are in a more partisan tribal world than I wish we were. And that's probably involves as a statement about both parties. So I don't expect the call. So I can speak freely here. First, I hope that if I had been in office in the last few years with an A-plus team at the Federal Reserve, we would have bought ourselves more degrees of freedom. We would continue to say, we don't know, but we'd mean it. 
we wouldn't act as though we had the crystal ball. We would have tapered sometime long before the tapering begins in the next few weeks. We'd be talking broadly about what are risks in markets, and we'd be much better positioned in the event that we've got to play catch up. We'd have far less ground to get caught up. But what if you know I were emerging at the Federal Reserve right now? I think the best I could do is I'd try the truth. Here's where we are. Here's what we think is the state of the labor markets, which I would argue is at full employment. Here is what we think is what's transitory around prices and what could well be permanent. And I would want my uncertainties about that, the uncertainties of the board of governors of the most important central bank in the history of the world, to be reflected and debated in financial markets, to be debated among businesses and investors. I wouldn't want to be at the top of the mountain reading scripture and having everyone else take the script, taking down notation. Because if I'm wrong, then there will be a very high price to pay. So I don't think they're well positioned at this moment. They don't look as uncomfortable with their positioning as I would be. And to be honest, I don't understand it on the, in the realm either of economics or, frankly, raw politics. So I guess, Kevin, you're really saying here is, given all the facts at the moment, there is room to tighten. You know, even if markets were to pull back somewhat, you would say, given what's gone on, there is room for some risk management here. And actually, there's no risk management going on. So there, you would say there'd be room for a tighter risk management world here than is being played at the moment. I think they've had room since we had knowledge that vaccines were coming soon to a theater near you and antidotes were coming that were going to mitigate some of the worst effects of COVID. I think we would have been able to buy insurance for a period going on a year and no insurance has been bought. Now, if I were in the investing business and I had risk-seeking investors, maybe I'd roll the dice. Maybe I'd like these prices, and I'd bet that the world's central banks are not going to let these asset prices fall. We didn't let the asset prices fall after the first enormous move in 08 and 09. Maybe the world's investors said, boy, they keep giving us a Pavlovian response when the stock market's off 5 or 10%, so we're going to keep betting on them. I get why the world, some of the world's investors want to roll the dice, but I don't happen to think that's the right public policy for the most important economies in the world at a hugely important moment. So if I sound a little uncomfortable with the conduct of policy, I am. And if I sound like I'd be more of a risk manager with an A-plus team, I'd be doing it because what we're solving for isn't any moment in time. Not this summer or next November or the 2024 elections. All we're solving for is how do we make our economies as strong as they can be over the next decade? And the way to do that, it strikes me, is to avoid booms and busts. We can have garden variety recessions. We can have some disruption in financial markets. But what does the most harm to the least well-off among us are a bunch of boom and bust economies with a bunch of hot money coming and going. And finally, I would say, if we wanted the next decade to be a strong one in the Western world, which I think is important, not just for economic grounds, but to keep some degree of geographic national security stability in the world. If we want to do that, the other thing that we should try to do is coordinate pretty well among the Western economies, try to move in the same direction, and broadly put in place a set of policies that are not exceptional but are normal 
so the real economy can invest, real consumers can adopt, so that we have the strongest economy 10 years from now. And I think the way to do that is not to have a series of booms and busts, which inevitably will put the world's central banks into a position where they aren't so special after all, where they're just another government agency. And that looks to be the trajectory we're going down if we don't sort of pause when we can and buy insurance. The world central banks spent a generation after the 1970s and early 80s demonstrating their independence. And I worry, although for the best of intentions, that they're losing a bit of that with each passing day with these sorts of policies. And Kevin, just moving around into, we're all investors here. Many people have got a lot of money invested in the equity markets. They may be invested in the credit markets here as well at the moment. We almost have to go back to 1999 to see investors as confident as they are today in backing business models and backing this economic recovery. How are you thinking about risk appetite at the moment and sort of what probability do you put in the next sort of 12 months, let's say that sort of time frame, 12 plus months, that investors just could get wrong-footed at this party at the moment? So first, I'd say uh, 1999 is child's play in risk markets compared to what we have now. I was a mergers banker at Morgan Stanley in 1999. I remember those days well. I remember when the bubble boomed and then busted. It was not a super important part of the global economy or even the U.S. economy. Sure, was there a house cleaning in Silicon Valley where technology companies beaten down in markets? Sure. But the pervasiveness of this move in asset prices, the number of people that are all in the pool now, it is deeper running through our society and our economy that if people say, well, there was a boom and bust in 2000, 2001. And, you know, after that, we had a decade of great productivity and growth. Boy, oh boy, I think that that pales in comparison to what we have in front of us now. Maybe we manage it better. Maybe in spite of what I would consider unwise decisions, we end up with some perfectly good outcomes. I'm open-minded to it, but I'm also open-minded to these other possibilities, and I'm not sure the world's central banks are. So that's my view of the 99 analogy. And is that partly, if you go back to 1999, the central banks had a lot of room to move as well to respond here. The central banks are kind of, I don't know what's left to do if we really had a crisis at this point in time, particularly if it was an inflation-driven event. You know, it's harder to, to hit the stimulus button if it's an inflation-driven cause of the correction. Yeah, I think you nailed it. The world's and central banks had huge arsenals. They had just finally, I would say, perfected their independence, both in the U.S. and around the world. I'm thinking of many of our friendly national central banks where they had separated themselves operationally or otherwise from their treasuries, and uh, they had a lot of credibility because they whipped inflation. If the catalyst for this repricing of risk assets is inflation, and I know the world is adding new things to central bank remits, bought an inclusive employment, climate risks, and the rest, judge those however you want in importance. The number one responsibility of the world's central banks are price stability. So if inflation, is the catalyst for a repricing of assets. It'll also be the catalyst for a reassessing of the acumen and ability and good judgment 
of the big central banks. So those that you'll need in harm's way might be least empowered from arsenal terms and credibility terms to respond. Again, you're making the case for insurance, but you know you and I know many central banks that don't seem to be in the insurance business and are willing to bet this thing goes well. And I really do hope they're right. Yeah, well, they're rolling the dice here. At the end of the day, they may be right, but if the dice will land on the wrong side here, there could be really a big event here. But who knows? I don't have a strong view on this either, but I can certainly see the risks here that you're talking about, Kevin. I'm going to ask one of my favourite questions at the moment. I actually haven't asked this question of you of quite some time. We may have talked about a year ago or so. I'm really looking at the outlook for 10-year US Treasuries. I think probably one of the most important benchmarks in the world that's highly distorted by what the central banks are, are doing. What's your best estimate on what the yield on US Treasuries may be at the end of 2021? And I don't think that's probably going to be that controversial. But at the end of 2022, and I may even frame this, do you think US Treasuries may be 1.5% or 3%? It's quite a range at the end of 2022. And it depends on some scenarios. It'd be great to sort of understand how you would sort of frame that outlook and your thinking. Okay, don't let me duck this one either, but I will say my friends at the Federal Reserve and their friends at other central banks have bought almost 100% of the net issuance across the treasury curve in the last seven months. So these prices, they show up on my Bloomberg screen, but they're not really prices in the sense of willing buyers and willing sellers. They are prices that aren't set in some open market. So you're asking me to make a prediction about a price that is in some sense, I don't mean an artificial price or a manipulated price, but that are of that variation. But with that caveat, I'll say this. I think it's easiest, but not easy to make a bet at the shorter end of the curve, because that is a proxy for what are these policymakers gonna do? If you have my view, which is they're behind, the markets at some point in the next several months and quarters are going to lurch back to the view they are behind. And the six month bill, the two year treasury, I think these yields have a asymmetric risk of moving higher. And so those are going to move materially higher, it strikes me. And so I wouldn't be sitting myself personally on a bunch of very short, short uh, yielding US treasuries. At the 10-year, which I think is the most important asset anywhere in the world, of which everything else in the world is priced, I would say those yields in all likelihood are going higher. And then on the other side of that, inevitably, will end up somewhat lower. Because I don't believe that the world's assets can sustain themselves at these levels in aggregate if the 10-year Treasury ends up being something closer to historical normals. So it's really a sequencing one. I'd say broadly, 10-year yields strike me as much more likely to go higher, even materially higher. Asset prices then have a harder time adjusting to that with some reasonable probability, which causes these yields to move to move back down. I think the, the last part of it, which makes it hard, is if you're as nervous as I am both about asset prices and about inflation, which I still think the world central banks could do something about, but they're not showing much interest in doing something about, that the inflation risk premium can find its way into those bonds. 
And there isn't been a trader that's been practicing the last 25 or 30 years that really has internalized that the way we had internalized it over the course of a generation or so. So short answer to an easy question, but a hard answer. I think broadly those yields all have a risk reward of going materially higher, but I don't think they sustain themselves there when the rest of the markets end up internalizing those higher prices. Yeah, and I'll just frame how I'm thinking. I think the yields at the short end of the curve and the back end of the curve for a whole series of reasons drift up. I'd kind of put around 2% at the end of this year, beginning of next year as the taper continues and Janet Yellen has to fill up the Treasury General account again. And we've just had some more infrastructure bills passed and so forth. And I think that's the direction of momentum at the moment. But then if I look out at the end of 2022, Kevin, I would say that if the Fed is right and this is all transitory and it's all Goldilocks and they can not really have to raise rates and only put one or two rate rises through the whole of 2022, I think we will probably have a sloping yield curve and we may be moving from 2 to 3% on the 10 years through these Goldilocks and inflation sort of recedes itself a bit and we're in this period of this long economic growth. But if inflation really becomes a problem and risk assets get repriced, most people would think, oh, well, yields are going to go up inflation's coming. And I'd say if inflation's really coming and there's a risk-off event, 10-year yields will come back down. So I would say that your thing is they go up and then come down would be a story of inflation, which is kind of counterintuitive to most people. Most people would say if it's inflation, I just think yields will always go up. But what actually happens is risk gets taken off in that environment, which is a little counterintuitive. So I think I know the explanation of what yields may be at the end of 2022, but I just don't have a clear picture of actually what's going to happen. I think if you tell me what's going to happen, I could probably tell you what's going to happen to the bond yields, which may be slightly counterintuitive to what people are thinking. Yeah. Let me pile on this thesis that we're saying in similar words. Inflation becomes a problem. The Fed gets worried about it. So as inflation becomes a problem, most people think, oh, they're going to have to play catch up and raise rates and they're going to have to taper even more quickly. Well, what if with fewer degrees of freedom, they think that the world can't handle that? They have to buy more bonds, not fewer. They have to own more of the treasury market. You know, I remember an old discussion I had with Ben Bernanke as we were debating QE2 in 2010. And I remember posing the question, so if this QE2 works, what will happen? And the answer was, well, we'll buy more bonds. And what will happen if this QE2 doesn't work? I'm afraid the answer is we'll buy more bonds. So I'm open-minded to a set of bad scenarios where yields after moving up come down because the central banks around the world say, not only do we now own treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, not only in the US have we backstopped the high yield market and the mortgage securities market, but now we need to backstop the equity market. And remember, the Bank of Japan owns more than 10% of the largest Japanese equities now that we've crossed these lines, in order to have, I think, the best, most accurate answer to the question of the 10-year yield, we have to know what the central bank's reaction function is to these events. And I think the historical reaction function and the prospective reaction function could be very, very different. And Kevin, just as a final sign-off, I think we've probably gone a little over time here. What are you, it's quite a lot of negative outlook and we need to have some risk management and we need to be careful in these markets. But what are you most positive about at the moment, you know, as an investor and as an economist? What are you most positive about what you're seeing in the world at the moment? I don't want people just to end on a negative note here. Yeah. 
So this might sound odd to the uninitiated who this is the first time with the two of us together, the first time hearing me. I'm an optimist. I think in spite of our best efforts to destroy some of the core tenets of the major Western economies, I still have a hope that the governments, in spite of their best efforts, have failed miserably. The core tenets that makes the U.S. economy and the best economies in the world move have nothing to do with the conduct of macroeconomic policy, nothing to do with infrastructure bills and deft monetary policy. It's what does the typical person in that country and that society do when they wake up in the morning and set out about their day? And I think if I look in the U.S., while COVID was hugely harmful and caused huge death and destruction, that exciting engine of business creation, entrepreneurship is alive and well. Broadly, you know, I spend some time with private companies, mostly in and around Stanford. The generation of companies that have come into being in the last 18 months, those companies are the finest vintage of companies I've seen. And I've been doing this on and off for 25 years. So if you believe what matters is the, what we call the micro foundations rather than the macroeconomics, you can be really optimistic. And I think those micro foundations continue to be strong, though they are deteriorating. Deteriorating because we used to have a society where you'd work more and earn more, and now many workers are being paid more not to work. So we're trying to take a shot at it. But those micro foundations, with just a little more help from our government and our society, they could set out a huge productivity wave and could give the West, I think, a reestablished confidence. We obviously have great geopolitical issues between the East and the West in the next 10 or 20 years. I think the most important thing we could do to end up in a period of global peace and prosperity is for the West to come out of this economically strong, not economically weak. And those micro foundations are well worth taking account of. So I think that's the optimistic note. This group of companies are the optimistic note. I don't want to end on pessimism, but I will say, even if I'm right about those companies and I'm right about the productivity that arises from the leaders in all these verticals, this very regressive tax and that kind of prosperity that I'm talking about that you invest in, that doesn't catch all parts of our society. So I worry even in that scenario that the society is sort of the democratic accountability becomes somewhat more difficult to achieve. And so even for has-been one-time economists like me, we have to dedicate some amount of our time, not just to think about productivity miracles and economic growth, but how do we make sure that the economies in the West are up to this and that all parts of our society are able to get their first leg up this ladder? That's been the secret of the West, the secret of meritocracy, and that's well worth preserving in the years in front of us. Well, Kevin, thank you very much for ending on the positive note. I completely agree with you on the innovation side, on the micro side of what's going on. There is some amazing advances that are happening in the world, and it's easy to be pessimistic about things. I think it's a very nice balance to finish on. And so, Kevin, once again, thank you for joining us on the podcast, and thank you for all the advice you give us and some sobering lessons you give us from time to time. And I'm looking forward to speaking with you again shortly. All right. Thanks again, Hamish. It's a pleasure to do it. That was Kevin Walsh, former governor of the US Federal Reserve, talking with Hamish Douglas, chairman and chief investment officer of Magellan. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, 
visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast, where you can also sign up to receive our regular investment insights program. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.